Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian and I am joined by James Rundle. Hello. And even better, today we have Gerard Francis, the Global Head of Enterprise Data at Bloomberg, once again join us. Thank you for being here. It's great to be on the 161st show. The 161st, yep. You were, the, the, the true fans of the show remember that you were back here in September and we were talking data fragmentation. And today we're going to talk alternative data. Yeah, we had a great time. So glad to continue the conversation. This will be good. And so I think that's the natural area to start. Uh, just So back in February, uh, Bloomberg announced that alternative data sets are now available through the company's data website, Bloomberg Enterprise uh, Access Point. This includes, so just to kind of familiarize with what that means, uh, this is providing data from some of the more prominent alternative provide alternative data providers that are out there. Such, yes, well, well done, well done. It's a tongue twister. Uh, such as uh, Thesos, Predata, Orbital Insight, Owl Analytics, a bunch of others that, that you've heard of. But maybe just to quickly start, uh, Gerard, for those who maybe haven't had a chance to um, to use a service or that uh, haven't heard about it, why don't you kind of talk about uh, what this release was and kind of the thinking behind why you guys did it. Sure. So I think what's really going on in the world around us is the desire for data continues to increase. And it's no longer about traditional financial data sets that people are used to, like financial statements and earnings estimates. It's beginning to bleed into new types of data that people look for in order to get signals by which they trade. So the appetite for data is growing. Uh, where people are really struggling uh, with is a couple of dimensions. One dimension is when you have so many sources of data from so many different kinds of people, how do you exactly visualize this and get easy access to it without driving yourself crazy? Uh, and the other aspect is how do I then make it easy to go off and consume without trying to program uh, to many different sources? Uh, so we as Bloomberg thought it's pretty cool. We've got a lot of great data. Our data flows to all of the financial institutions around the world. Uh, last year, we launched the Enterprise Access Point that really took all this data, put it in one place, put a nice web interface in front of it so people could find all the great stuff that Bloomberg had. And now why don't we just not only, besides carrying Bloomberg data, let's carry other data sets too that our clients might care about. And that's really how we put on alternative data uh, and really made it a platform where other people can resell their data in order to make it accessible uh, to a broad audience. I find this kind of this concept interesting. Um, so when we talk about alternative data, obviously it's become a topic du jour over the past few years. Um, everything from geolocation data through to um, more sort of nuanced forms of it. I think one of the things that we've been hearing recently and been covering is that there are so many providers in this space now sort of doing what they call alternative data, whether it is or whether it isn't, who knows. Um, as somebody who has now done this with Bloomberg um, Access Point, what's your feeling about the general sort of landscape? Do you think there are there is a, a huge amount of uh, providers around this and it can be consolidated, or do you think that people are only really scratching the surface of what's available in terms of alternative data? Well, the big challenge for any person who has alternative data is can you find a client who thinks your data is valuable enough to pay for? Mm -hmm. uh, when you really talk to many of the hedge funds and people who ultimately pay for alternative data, they will probably tell you, because that's what they tell me, that they only buy uh, between one and two from every 20 data sets that they try. Mm -hmm. 
So the success rate is really low from somebody trying it to somebody actually being willing to buy it. Having said that, you'll have some data sets that give clients signals uh, or value, and those will sell. And you'll have a lot of other data sets where clients can't get the value easily, and those probably won't sell. But what you will have constantly is different types of people who believe that their data has value, that they will try and get in front of the client, but the clients ultimately are going to determine that is there enough value for them to pay for the data. So I think the spread of alternative data providers will continue, but the number of people who successfully make a business out of it uh, is going to be limited. That's, yeah, I mean, it's, we were talking to people from uh, from Thassos Group, for instance, who were saying that sometimes it takes up to like what one or two years to get a data set from yeah. sort of the beginning to production. So. I guess if no one buys it, that's two years of kind of wasted effort, right? And also, yeah, so we had uh, Greg Skibisky, I might might be pronouncing it. Yeah, hopefully I got that name right. (laughs) Uh, Who's a CEO of Thesis, and he was also saying, added on to that is just signing the contract. Sometimes just from, you know, not only the data set to get that going and out to a client, but also then just getting them to sign on beyond just the, the playing around with it. So I guess, so it would sound like this kind of a play. It, It revolves more around allowing financial services firms to be able to explore and play around with these and have uh, to put some interesting data firms in front of other uh, potential clients that they wouldn't have had access to? Yeah, so I think that's, that's exactly part of the point. But I think what we are really trying to do is take away the friction, right? You correctly pointed out there's friction in terms of the time to uh, download the data, normalize it, and get value out of it. And there's friction in the contractual process. And we try to take that away because when we deliver an alternative data provider through the Bloomberg Enterprise Access platform, our clients don't sign any more paperwork with the third-party providers. They're really dealing with Bloomberg. So it cuts down on the contractual time effort uh, to get that signed. Mm-hmm. The next thing they're doing is they're pulling the data down to the blue, through the Bloomberg API through which they already programmed previously to get the Bloomberg data down, uh, which really means it simplifies the whole process for clients to get the data. So just by cutting away at the friction from the end client perspective, we make it a lot easier and faster for them to get at the data and therefore for them to find value and hopefully to go and buy it. From a third party perspective, from an alternative data perspective, it's a great benefit because they don't have to worry about contracts with the clients. Uh, they don't have to worry about making sure the data is getting to the client every day on time. Uh, they'll benefit from the Bloomberg Salesforce that already has relationships with all the clients around the world that matter and already rely on Bloomberg for data. So for them, it's a great way to get the data in front of them. Uh, so overall, it's a win-win for everybody and takes a lot of friction out of the process. And the other thing is, so as James had mentioned before, when we talk about alternative data, God, the space is just so huge. I mean, you know, you have your market data, you have reference data, and that's everything else. And so from what you've seen, um, dealing with clients, dealing with people that are using the service, what are the the most, the to maybe say the hottest, the alternative data sets, what sectors of alternative data are right now people most interested in, do you find? Uh, I think that's probably a difficult question to answer. Uh, I think what we see is people are looking for those data sets that when they extract the data and put it into their quantitative program or their machine learning program, 
they see much better projected returns. That's okay. what they're looking for. In some cases, it might be sentiment coming out of blogs or some types of unstructured data. In other cases, it might be uh, data uh, that is a precursor to what might happen later. For instance, the level of an oil in a tank, etc. But ultimately, this, the value is not just in the data itself. It's also in the ability of the end consumer to generate value from it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's like a, a nice dish that you're cooking, uh, right? The more ingredients you have, you could end up with a great dish or you could end up with a terrible dish. Mm -hmm. It all depends on the chef. Uh, and that's very much the story with alternative data. Some quantitative managers will get a lot of value out of it, whereas some others can't. And it really lies in how they put it together. Uh, well, let me, let me reform the question and maybe, do you think that there's, you know, just thinking about taking a step back and looking because there are all new sorts of data sets that are hitting the market on a daily basis, new sectors, and that will increase thanks to 5G technology, thanks to the Internet of Things, things like that. Do you think that there are any alternative set data sets that maybe aren't being explored as much now that you think will become more important down the road, whether geopolitical risk, whether it's around IoT and some of that uh, kind of offshoot? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think people are going to uh, go after more and more data sets. I think the biggest change in dimension will come from the frequency of the data sets. Uh, today, a lot of data is gathered uh, on a monthly basis or a weekly basis because it's harder to put things together. But I think with the types of technology you're talking about, the frequency with which the numbers update is going to get more frequent and that's going to make it a lot more interesting to clients. So yes, I think the Internet of Things will create data sets, uh, and there'll be other types of data sets that, that's going to emerge in future, but ultimately the value lies and does the data actually give the investor uh, a better return on their investment. So I just want to come back to this analogy of, of using alternative data as part of a recipe for making a dish. Um, so you guys have a really interesting position where you're kind of in an intermediary role, I guess, so you mm -hmm. see what the providers are doing, but you also see what the consumers are doing on it. Um, so is that, in your experience, how people are really using this as a kind of augmentation or as part of their investment strategy rather than using alternative data as, you know, to inform an entire stra investment strategy on its own? Um, yeah. What's your kind of your view on that? So. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of uh, any situations where by itself it can inform an investment strategy. Mm -hmm. It's normally always used in com combination with reference data, fundamental data, pricing data, valuation data and how you combine those things that is what generates really true value. And that's, I mean, yeah, because I, you know, I speak to quite a few people who maybe aren't in the alternative data space, and they say, well, you know, surely these secretive hedge funds are just using this secret data that they have, but, mm -hmm. like, you know, surely the second you productize it, it becomes relatively useless if that's what you want to do with it. So it's, sure, it's, like, it's, yeah. it's got to be something where it's a combination of everything yeah. and then just mixing and matching, seeing what works more yeah. or less. But I, th I think there's also a story in general commoditization of data. Mm -hmm. uh, Ten years ago, when brokers collected earnings estimates from companies, that would have been, uh, in quotes, alternative at that stage. Yeah. Now it's become more mainstream. Right? So you always have a continuum between data that is rarer to get and harder to get, and the more people buy it, the more commoditized it gets, and therefore other things become alternative over time, and what we consider alternative and popular today will become mainstream a few years later. 
And okay. so, yeah, there are any sort of parts that you see as becoming almost fundamental data in its own right. So if you're invested in REITs, for instance, looking at footfall traffic surely is now part of what you have to do. Same as looking at the balance sheet and the earnings and everything else. It's, yeah, I, I think yeah. the one area that um, will over time become more commoditized is geolocation data. Mm-hmm. It's really how do vary, how closely things are related to each other physically and therefore how do they impact each other, right? And that could be weather to factories to... Uh, accidents to road closures and traffic and how all of those different things interact with each other. So I certainly foresee that in four or five years' time, the ability for a wide swath of investors to handle geolocation data, which is really latitude latitude and longitude, Mm -hmm. will become more widespread and people will use that more broadly. Yeah, because I think you're, and even kind of tied into another alternative data set that's, you know, a lot much talked about, but talking about ESG data and you were talking about facility location, weather patterns, stuff like that, the change in uh, climate and flooding and stuff like that, it's all kind of now being incorporated together, being able to take that geolocation, incorporate it with these changes, uh, with with this kind of ESG subset, and knowing how to kind of blend that. That's where, and having the data scientists to be able to, to connect and find the linkages to that, because you can offer them the data, but what you do with it, I guess, is where it comes into use, right? Exactly. And that's another big issue, too. Uh, today, the number of people who can actually handle complex data sets through a process of data science is relatively few. Mm. And I think it's few because the technology is hard, the tools are hard, and you very often need people who are good mathematicians to go and do it. Yeah. What will happen over time is the tools will just get a lot easier. So you don't need people who are as qualified in order to do data science. And as that process happens, you'll just have more and more people around the world who can get value out of these data sets and the use will just become a lot more widespread. Okay. Just wonder, since since it's it's been a relatively speaking short amount of time since you guys launched your product, do you find that clients are coming to you saying, listen, this is a useful service. We're not exactly quite sure how to, is there a little bit of hand-holding that you have to go through with them? Or is it something where you just kind of say, where the customer like, just back off, we got it. You know, just just get us the information, we'll figure out what to do with it. Yeah, so I, th- I think what we've seen initially is uh, clients initially just want to make sure they know how to download it and pull the data down. And then we start seeing people just beginning to try it. Mm-hmm. So there are various data sets that people say, hey, that looks interesting, let me go off and try it. And then they'll take it from us for two or three months, they'll try and look for a signal, and if they like a signal and they find something useful, they'll keep it. Yeah. Uh, so that's the process we're going through. We're pleasantly surprised that people are actually trying many different data sets right now. Uh, initially, it was just one or two, and now the breadth of sets that they're trying has suddenly begun to increase. Uh, so that's really docs to the point that people want to try many things, and if they find value, they'll keep it. So how involved do you guys get in, uh, obviously, when you bring a provider on board? Um, is there a vetting process you go through in terms of uh, looking at the integrity of the data they provide? I mean, yeah. you know, you, you talk about ESG, for instance, sure. we were just talking about. You hear a lot about greenwashing of data, for instance, and that kind of thing. Um, do you guys get in the guts of what these guys are providing and sort of validate it as well? Yeah, so, so we go a certain extent of the way. So, for instance, we check if they're a credible company. Are they big enough to mm-hmm. service the case? Are they getting the data legitimately? Uh, so we go through a whole bunch of uh, checks uh, that we go through uh, before we go off and consider them for the platform. Yeah. Uh, right, so I think and the end client does their own due diligence too in order to make sure this data is fit for purpose for the investment process. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, there is additional work that needs to be done, but we do take care of certain critical pieces uh, in the diligence process. 
And actually, I, I would like to actually just quickly uh, delve into the ESG space just a little bit. You know, OwlShares, I know, being one of the providers that, that, that's on the platform, I'm sure that there are others. It, it's such a wide, we talk about alternative data being so wide, ESG, E, S, and G could really be decoupled into ES and G and have separate things. Sure. Um, on the Bloomberg terminal, there's a way to um, check for climate change, stuff like that, that there is a lot of ESG functionality built around that. As this is becoming more and more of a hot topic, something that people want to consider as um, physical uh, as uh, physical facility risk and then climate risk um, becomes more of a of a topic that investors are considering do you what are the challenges that you find that that customers right now are, are facing and what are the ways past those challenges I guess sure so I think uh, any ESG process is going to begin with the gathering of the raw data. Mm-hmm. And in different countries, in different jurisdictions, companies are forced to report differently. Yeah. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges is going to be do all the companies sup- uh, report a sufficient amount of data in order to then inform the investors so they can make fair comparisons and it's not apples versus oranges. Yeah. Uh, so that's probably the biggest challenge, the standardization of reporting requirements. Once the data itself is reported in a standardized manner and you have enough quality, then you can go off and do things like scoring and relative comparisons and nice value-added derived data analytics. Uh, but for that to work and be credible, the underlying data's got to be good. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we're at that place. Uh, the second thing that is a bit of a challenge is how do you get companies to back-report their data? Mm-hmm. Because when any investor invests, they need to go and backtest. And if they need to backtest, they need to have enough data going back in time to backtest it. Sure. So I think we're probably at the early stages where we have some amount of credible data with ESG. Uh, but my hope is that over time is we have better, more common standards that are properly implemented. And the disclosure becomes a lot better. That will then inform much more accurate uh, scoring processes uh, for each of the ES and G. So like uh, you talk about standardization, so like kind of like through what some of the efforts that FASB uh, exactly. is doing over here and so, some of these efforts. The G20 seeing, effort yeah. and a yeah. whole bunch of efforts in order to recommend what best practices are around yeah. ESG reporting. Because I guess, you know, the vendor providers can only do so much, it, you know, there's only so much information they can possibly bring yeah. in, but there's still kind of that information gap that's always going to exist between companies and then what's required and stuff like that. That's right. All right. That's exactly right. And then... Another area around the alternative space has been talked a lot is around um, this idea of banks and custodians trying to figure out ways of monetizing this information that they have coming in. But obviously that's hit roadblocks, whether because of privacy concerns, whether because of contractual agreements. Do you see there ever being a way that that this that these kind that companies can take this data that they are bringing in? and being able to then sell it out uh, as a third-party provider? Or do you think that that's always going to be a roadblock with the way that the regular uh, privacy concerns and um, contractual agreements are structured, I guess? Yeah, and I I think we live in a world where privacy is super important, Mm -hmm. and I don't think anybody's going to get comfortable with private data getting shared. Uh, So that's a harder gap to bridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the bigger question is, can you aggregate data sufficiently so therefore you can't really derive any kind of construct as to whose it might be or even what any particular customer is doing or is not doing. Yeah. 
And I think so ultimately, while the topic is interesting, I don't see a rapid acceleration of people being able to provide this data unless they're able to mitigate a lot of the concerns. And what about you guys at Bloomberg? I mean, you've always been known as you know a key information provider in the markets for market you know market data offering strong, reference data offering strong. Do you see a future you guys become a provider of alternative data as well, in whatever form that is, or do you are you happy in this kind of middleman role between the guys who are doing the heavy lifting right now and and being the bridge between the yeah. users. Yeah, I, I think there are certain data sets that Bloomberg will be good in and will continue to get better and better and more of the core data sets care about. But you're always going to have alternative data providers who do things that go beyond what I would consider traditional financial market data. Mm-hmm. So I think you, you will continue to have space uh, for both to exist. And as things get more commoditized, clearly Bloomberg will do it. Once upon a time, Bloomberg didn't do economic estimates. Uh, we do that today. Uh, today we also do averages for economic estimates on GDP forecasts. Uh, we do uh, sentiment analysis on news stories. Sure. We begin to do some kind of early alerting, uh, early alerts that we generate based on whether we think uh, bond prices are going to go up or down. Uh, we do liquidity analytics. Yeah. So Bloomberg is going to continue to expand the envelope of data sets that we cover. But even as we do that, we think there'll always be a lot of space uh, for people who just have direct primary access to certain types of data sets to provide that over the Bloomberg data feed and website. Uh, and on the terminal, we've always carried it. On the terminal, under the BI function, we've always carried data sets from other providers. This really institutionalized the process by which we can expose it to a wide audience, especially for qualitative use. And forgive me if this is there. Well, first of all, just to clarify for anybody listening, um, you because I've mentioned the terminal before. You don't. Do you have to be a terminal provider to have access to access points or to be able to use it, or can you? Uh, is that offered as a separate uh, entity? Yeah, this is not part of the Bloomberg terminal. Uh, we really have a data business at Bloomberg where we provide data for use right across the firm's division mm-hmm. uh, and they can move it around and use it anywhere they want. And people tend to use this data in their operation system, risk systems, research areas, and now increasingly in the data science and quantitative areas where we are regarded as one of the best suppliers of high quality financial data. Sure. And then um, for with what you guys are building, with what your team's building, how much of it is it, because I, I know on the quant side, on you know, kind of using the trend function on Bloomberg and stuff like that, there's a lot of NLP, there's a lot of machine learning um, underpinning uh, the results that are being generated through that. Is that something where you guys are investing in with your team? Or is it more about the, the, the user functionality and the ability to search and, and find what you're looking for easily, I guess? How, how does that kind of work as far as incorporating new uh, technologies and techniques um, to help the user out? Yeah, so we're doing some really cool stuff. So Bloomberg's invested in NLP for many years now for many different purposes. Partly whenever a new story comes out, we've got to quickly figure out what is that, uh, which companies are mentioned in the story and how important are those companies, which people are mentioned in the story, how important are those people. So we've always had great technology uh, for doing natural language processing. Uh, we've also invested a lot in uh, data extraction. So when annual reports are published for 15 years now, we've invested technology that rapidly grabs the data from the annual report using machine learning techniques to then go off and extract the table, extract the data, which we would then push out to the terminal. Mm-hmm. Now what we're really doing is making more of these technologies available to clients to use within their own environments 
we're looking at making some of these document analytics available as a service so clients can run their own documents through it and leverage our analytics, uh, NLP analytics, uh, to derive some of the numbers for themselves. Uh, so we're constantly in investing in, uh, and we're actually market leading in many of these areas, and we're giving this benefit back to our clients, not just for Bloomberg content, but also for non-Bloomberg content. So where you're kind of providing the environment for people to be able to combine with what you're providing and also what they have, kind of creating a one-stop shop, I guess, in, in some ways of an environment for people to use this information and figure out how it works with their internal stuff and then also to be able yeah. to incorporate other things. Yeah, I think the way we're rolling this out is to be to solve specific problems. So the first problem a client may have is I've got all these documents sitting in my own four walls, but I don't know which company this is about, which people these are about. And so then we can take their documents, run it through an algorithm, and classify it for them. Yeah. So we're going to go problem by problem and figure out what do, which problem does clients want Bloomberg to solve and go and solve that problem for yeah, them. Yeah, exactly. Because I guess that's something you have to kind of figure out where is a wide swath of user need versus just trying to help individual customers on one bespoke you know, kind of yeah. uh, problem because then that can become an unwieldy yeah, challenge, yeah. right? Yeah, but bespoke is, is never good. Yeah, exactly. It's better solving for everybody than solving for one person. All right, very good. Well, Gerard, uh, again, this was uh, fun. It's a good conversation. Look forward to having you back uh, later this year. You know, we'll, we'll figure out a new, because uh, data, there's always something that uh, can be talked about, uh, data analytics space. That's right? true. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, James. It's a pleasure Thanks, being man. here. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers.